0: Love, talk, radio. Welcome, one and all. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. This is the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network, which visits you every Thursday morning at 11 o'clock Pacific Time or 2 o'clock Eastern Time. Today's guest is actually very, very famous. Norman Fisher is an internationally recognized and known individual who knows more about meditation than, I suppose, anybody on this earth. He believes that the principles of meditation ought to be conveyed to everyone and has constructed a website that has a wealth of resources for anyone to access. Norman is a prolific writer. And all of his writings are available on his website. Joining me today is Nancy Welsh, who will actually be taking the lead in interviewing Norman Fisher. Nancy Welsh is a mental health counselor from Bellingham, Washington. She's practiced there for 23 years. And Nancy is the author of the forthcoming book, Medicine Meditation. She's been interviewing a number of individuals across the country who are experts, and clearly at the top of the list is Norman Fisher. So I want to now transfer the uh, question-asking responsibilities over to Nancy Welsh, who I'd like to thank for being with us at Parkinson's Recovery today.
1: Oh, well, you're very welcome, Robert. Thank you for having having me and, and Norman on today. Um, it's a... Uh, Clarify clarify uh, a little bit, I have been practicing Zen meditation since uh, 1992, and uh, when you say I'm on track of being a scholar, I am an apprentice at this point to uh, Zoketsu Norman Fishu, Fisher. Zoketsu is his Zen name, um, or Dharma name, and uh, which I'm an apprentice in learning how to be a, a lay, a formal formal Len Zen teacher. So I just kind of wanted to clarify that. Um, so, Norman, hello. I'm, Hi. I, I guess it would help because a lot of people who are going to read this aren't very familiar with uh, meditation or Zen, and even though you have um, many books and they are very well known internationally, um, could you talk a little bit about yourself? How long have you practiced Zen and... Um, uh, just a little bit about your background, if you don't
2: mind. Sure. Well, I began my uh, Zen practice in, in 1970. As a young man in college, I was interested in, in uh, you know, the nature of reality, and I thought that meditation would be a good way to investigate reality. So when I found out about the practice, I immediately devoted myself to it. So I began then. And uh, I, was, uh, I went and trained in a Zen monastery in America uh, from 1976 to 1981. And then in 1981, I moved to a, a Zen temple, a sort of semi-monastic enclosure where I lived from 1981 until uh, 2000. And I became abbot of the Zen center in 1995 to 2000. And I was ordained as a priest in in 1980, so I have really spent my whole adult life uh, in in Zen training temples uh, with daily meditation practice and lots of intensive Zen retreats, and I received Dharma Transmission, which is uh, full priest ordination and permission to teach, in, in 1988. And when I retired from the Zen Center in 2000, after my term of office of abbot was over, I started the Everyday Zen Foundation, which is a a big umbrella that includes lots of different Zen groups up and down the Pacific coast from Canada to Mexico, and as well as uh, a number of other projects that involve the application of meditation to various aspects of American life, from working with uh, conflict resolution professionals to people in the tech industry, people who care for the dying, uh, and so on. So that's what I've been doing for the last... 35 or 40 years, I guess.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: very impressive, and, and I know that you have worked with the dying, you've worked with AIDS patients, and have you worked with other health-compromised patients in, specifically?
2: Well, I have uh, over the years uh, through, through uh, Zen practice. In other words, uh, there would be people who would be practicing Zen with me who would have illnesses and then... Uh, With that particular person, the dialogue about their practice would have to do with their illness. Uh, One example of this, especially of interest to people who have Parkinson's, is that one of the priests that I ordained and that I was very, very close to for a number of years was a man named Michael Sawyer, who was a painter and a full-time Zen practitioner. And he suffered from Parkinson's disease for uh, 25 years, and uh, in many ways... um, Made the Parkinson's disease itself and his experience of it uh, the centerpiece of his uh, spiritual journey, and it was always a very moving thing to hear him uh, speak about it. Insofar as he could, as, he, as toward the end of his life, he he lost the ability to speak more or less. But um, so with him, I really got a kind of a crash course in
3: mm-hmm.
2: it, Parkinson's disease and and how. Uh, mindfulness practice, meditation practice, the cultivation of just being present can really have an impact on one's experience of that disease. But also, uh, I've worked with people with cancer and um, all kinds of other various maladies, um, but that mostly with individuals. In in terms of working with with groups, it's been mostly uh, people, dying people, and caregivers for the dying that I've worked with. Yes,
1: and you certainly helped me enormously in that area with my own uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. I know our very first uh, uh, interview together, or on or, as it's um, called, uh, that was the first thing I brought up because I was convinced uh, after several hours of sitting my first retreat that um, there was no way I could do this and I was in great pain and great misery. And um, You uh, I remember you uh, just so compassionately saying, it's okay to unbend your knees and lie down if you need to as long as you keep breathing and keep practicing. And you really opened the door for me, um, although, of course, through my own pride, it took me a while to um, actually practice what you suggested. But um, you've been of enormous help um, you know, through our work together over the years, helping me cope with, um, the pain, the, the disability, and, and, the, and the psychological shame, I, I, I often suffer with this illness. And, and I think yeah. greatly, you know, in terms of that individual work, I've been, um, gr- you know, just very, very grateful for, for what you've given me in that well, area. Well, thanks.
2: Yeah. And, you know, as you know, um, it's so complicated. You know, the, the pain, physical pain, has so many dimensions and there are so many different sorts of sensations involved with the pain. And then there's all the sort of psychological and personal feelings that go along with it that make it uh, uh, more painful, actually, and and more complicated. And and it's all of that that we have to deal with uh, in our meditation practice. Yes, and
1: some of the works I've read um, by other uh, Buddhist practitioners who... Have um, struggled with chronic disease. They they often mention uh, how thinking, you know, if I just practice hard enough or well enough, I should be able to somehow rid myself of this pain or or no longer experience the pain. And when they don't have that experience, they feel the shame, depression a sense of failure and, and so it's really wonderful to have teachers who say that's not what meditation is a is about. This this isn't this isn't a curative um necessarily a curative process. It's teaching you how to live with it rather than cure it. Would you say yes. That's correct?
2: Yes yeah, um, and and that's the trick. You know, not to think that um the goal here is to make the pain go away the difficulty go away, to be sure, sometimes there is relief from the pain Mm
3: -hmm.
2: as a result of the meditation practice. And I suppose it's not impossible that somehow or other, depending on the condition, there could be some significant change in the physical condition. But generally, what you say is really the case. It's a matter of how do we live with what we've got? Mm -hmm. How do we manage it? And if there is pain... How do we have some happiness and some relief, even in the middle of some discomfort? Mm-hmm. That's, that's really the question.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know if um, you can be a bit more specific. I, I was wondering if there's any, when you work, let's say, with a particular group, um, is there any specific form you help them with in terms of their meditation, such as a, a guided meditation or instructions to focus on a particular area or issue of pain, is it, is it um, more just the free form, really breathing and being present in the moment, and then um, I believe there's also a, uh, I'm not sure if I have this right, but I know we've practiced it in retreats, long meditation, where you meditation, where you meditate for the the, the, the the well-being and the end of suffering for others as well as yourself, mm-hmm. is, is that, can you
3: well, What's that called? as you
2: know I, I i use many, many different uh techniques and and i'll and I'll tailor something to a person's individual needs or to the needs of the group
3: mm-hmm. but
2: uh, as you as you are saying, um, the fundamental meditation uh, that I always come back to, and even when I offer other more directed sorts of meditations or guided meditations. The fundamental meditation of Zen and the one that I always come back to and I think is is ultimately the most valuable is the practice of just sitting uh, in the present moment uh, with the sensations of the body and with the breath. Just being present with whatever is there, uh, with whatever pleasant or unpleasant sensations, with whatever thoughts, with whatever feelings. Uh, Staying with the feeling of the body and the feeling of the breath, to create a kind of container for whatever else arises. Although it's very counterintuitive. You know, one would think, well, now how's that going to help anything? (laughs) But the fact of the matter is that that is the most helpful thing, the willingness to actually be present without hating what you're feeling or trying to make it stay there always, just to be present and allow something to come and allow something to go. That is the most powerful and the most fundamental of of all meditations. So I always go back to that, and that that is basic and very profound. Uh, I think it's the most profound uh, not only of Zen meditations, but of all Buddhist meditations. So we always return to that. Yeah, go ahead.
1: uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but um, it's it's also fundamental in... in, uh, Psychotherapy, at least the way I practice, when um, people talk about wanting to rid themselves of what they feel are um, um, unattractive or or inappropriate feelings, um, to allow them to just accept that feeling, to be with it, to maybe even by just quietly being with it, learn a little bit more about it without having to react to it. It's it's often the person's re, uh, reaction or their 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 evaluation of the pain they're experiencing that really causes them more pain.
3: Yes, you know, exactly right. If they, right. Can,
1: if, they cannot, if they can change the way they interpret what what they're experiencing, whether it be physical pain or emotional pain uh it can really change the ex- you know I really believe it it changes the nature and the experience they have of the pain to so a much less absolutely painful experience
2: yeah, no, it is exactly the same thing and uh there's a wonderful a colorful expression in Zen uh about this which is uh don't put a head on top of your head. <laughs> Don't put a head on top of your head. So the so the first head is you have a pain. You know, with your rheumatoid arthritis, there's pain in the joints. So there is a pain in the joints. That's one head. Mm-hmm. Putting a head on top of your head is when you say, "Oh, I hate this pain. Why won't it go away? Why do? What did I ever do to deserve this? How come nobody else has this pain? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, and all of that beca- be- begins to become actually, in many ways, more painful or at least as painful as the original pain. Absolutely. So the idea is, can you accept and be present with the pain and take away that second head that you put on top of your head and just have the original head? And when you do that, life becomes much more bearable and and, and even sometimes quite beautiful.
1: It it does. I, I sometimes question the beauty part. At other times, I experience <laughs> it very deeply. But I do know that... Taking that second head off has helped a lot with, I don't know if this is part of the second head or perhaps even a third head, which is <laughs> yeah. the, the shame of of, with the feeling <laughs> of, of being deformed, of being um, somehow uh, uh, an outcast in, in, in my own eyes from, yes. from yes. the rest of society, um, especially since, you know, as a child, uh, being yeah. a deformed child was very, very difficult to not have that sort of third interpretation of not only, you know, why me and isn't this awful, but how could anybody love a monster? You know, that, yeah, that whole, yeah. I mean, it's just yeah, incredible. Yeah, that, that
2: whole, yeah.
1: Not of, of, of horror, <laughs> that yeah. when you start, you know, un, unweaving that web and just get down to, okay, this is the pain, this is what I have, and and this is all it is, this is all it means. It means nothing other than I have this disease, I have this pain, it is uh, so transformative,
3: mm-hmm.
1: incredibly transformative.
2: That's right. In a, in a way, I mean, to even take it a step further, and I hope maybe this is going too far, but maybe not. In a way, you don't even have the disease. You have a set of sensations in the body.
3: Yeah. The disease
2: is a convenient label that is put on top of that so that doctors can know what to call something
3: and mm-hmm. can know
2: how to treat it
3: mm-hmm.
2: but in a way you know uh that's you you want, we end up identifying ourselves with that label and with that disease as if that was ourselves but actually it's it's really a series a uh, succession of various uh sensations in the body and that's and that's what it is and that's what we have to cope with but you're right the whole i mean it, it really is Terrible, especially in a beauty and health obsessed society like the one that we live in. Uh, it's very difficult to feel that you're not in the swim of that. That there's something, you know, different about you or, or "quote unquote" wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And that and the isolation and loneliness uh, of that is, uh, you know, one of the, really one of the most painful aspects of chronic illness. I think.
1: Right, which is very much self imposed although at the time you don't realize that yeah you know, you're, you're sort of doing this to your to yourself,
2: to some extent, but also you know other people who are afraid of pain or afraid of illness might also reinforce you in that, right, oh poor you,
3: yeah absolutely,
2: right. yeah, isn't it terrible that you have this and and then under their breath. And thank God it's not me,
3: <laughs> you know.
2: <laughs> so that can reinforce that sense of isolation. So that's why you need support, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah, and um, I was talking with Robert earlier about how, um, and, and some people, you know, not just myself, but but other uh, things I've read and other chronically ill people that I've worked with myself. Um, often say that you know some people say, well, well, why did you choose to give this to yourself? You know, if you just could, uh, that sort of mind over matter um, uh, thing, or you know, if you were really a good, uh, it, it's almost Calvinistic. <laughs> you know, it gets back to, you know, if you if you were truly a good meditator or a good, uh, a believer in in uh, um, abundance and and happiness, then then you wouldn't have this. Yeah. And you know, it's very much blaming the victim and yet without you know, they don't see it that way, they see it as giving helpful advice.
2: Right, so I, right. Affirmations and so on, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I have some um technical questions here that I think would be very good for I know, um, Rogers Parkinson's patients have um have often asked these questions and uh as well as some of the, the chronically ill people I've worked with in my practice and um one of it is, uh, of course, when a person is physically limited and and they feel like to sit lotus or half lotus is the way, the only way. And so they say, well, I I can't sit with my legs crossed. How can I still meditate? Can you speak a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Well, as you were saying earlier, from your own experience, um, yeah, when there's meditation instructions given, ah, uh, very often the instructions uh, follow the traditional. Uh, Asian sitting posture, uh, which, you know, we all know, the full lotus or half lotus sitting up mm-hmm. straight with your legs folded up and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, that's a good posture for meditation for sure, which is why it's uh, sort of usually taught in that way. But clearly, uh, one doesn't need to be able to sit in that way in order to meditate. The most important factors, I think, for the posture and for the body in meditation Uh, are the possibility of having the the spine lengthened. In other words, uh, somehow sitting up straight and lengthening the spine, or you can do the same thing, lying down, which opens the spine, opens the heart area. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. And then the other thing is, uh, and and it's partly connected to this, is that the breathing is conscious and full and open. Yes. So... um, but this can certainly be done sitting in a chair, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it can be done lying down. Uh, it can also be done, uh, you know, there, there's walking meditation, too, so you can do it when you're walking, you know, very slowly. Right. There so are there are people who have spinal easy. issues, you know, and may not be able to lengthen the spine, uh, but they can do that as much as uh, it's comfortable for them. And then uh, pay attention to the breathing, and we're always breathing. And there are people who have, to some extent, compromised breathing, but uh, but we're all breathing to some extent, and uh, you know, with with uh, whatever degree of freedom that we can manage. So paying attention to the breathing and to the sensations of the body, regardless of the posture, is um, is the point. And I think that. Um, when you have uh, issues with your body, I think the thing to do, you know, there's, you know, the extremes are on the one hand. One extreme is, oh my God, my body is a mess and I'm wounded. and I would better stay as far away from it as possible.
3: <laughs> you
2: know, that's one extreme. The other right. extreme is let the one that you out. just, pardon me. Uh,
1: just uh, the sense of let me check out of this body. Yeah, let me get out of here. Be over
3: here. <laughs> yeah, yeah be somewhere else.
2: Yeah. yeah. So that's one extreme, and then the other extreme. Is is the one that you mentioned a moment ago. Well, I ought to be able to, uh, it's all in my head. You know, I ought to be able to sit up perfectly straight in the lotus posture no matter what's wrong with me, and I'll make myself do that. Mm -hmm. That's the other extreme. So when you have, uh, physical issues, you have got to explore the edge of what you can do. So you really, you really make an effort, you know, let's say to sit up straight. Uh, and if it's difficult for you because of your condition, you, you have to pay attention to that and always see, you know, for this moment, what is the edge? Where where can I uh, be open and straight in the body as much as possible, and where am I going too far and imposing something on myself? The, the feeling is we want to find the way, our own unique way, given our condition, to open the body, make the body feel open and uplifted. Um, how do we do that? Where is it that we are uplifted? Where is it that we're crunching down because we're discouraged? Where is it that we're imposing something from the outside? We want the body to be uplifted and lengthened and stretched from the inside with the spirit to open up the body. And so we all have to explore the edge of how to do that for ourselves.
1: You're right I, I, I know in uh, in uh, your teachings and uh, retreats you've often suggested. To all of us, um, regardless of our health, if you uh, feel the need to move in whatever position you're in, chair, lotus, whatever, but if you feel like you must move to just take at least a few more deep breaths and then see where it goes, and then if you still need to move, you do it. Exactly. But But you give yourself a little space to really kind of experience whatever that that urge to move is through that breathing, do I have that correct that...
2: yes yes and 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 it really is a very very important point and a profound point because when there's something you know uh stirring in the body of, of difficulty some uh, you know illness some some sensations in the body that are that are tough to bear, you know one really has to have the courage, really, the courage to be able to be there with it. Because, as you well know, the natural reaction is, as we were saying a moment ago, get me out of here. I don't want to feel this. Let me distract myself in some way.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and and that, in the end, you know, it's a slippery slope, and it ends up really making things worse. So can can we have the courage to realistically and honestly with lots of kindness for ourselves doing the things we need to do actually be willing to be with the sensations in the body as they are and and that's the point of that instruction that you just mentioned okay now I feel bad sitting here it's beginning to hurt so rather than doing what I usually do try to get out of here as soon as possible (laughs) what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to say look I I can breathe two breaths and feel this pain it won't kill me I can be willing to feel what it feels like. I'll move, you know, and make it be a little more comfortable for myself, for sure. But first, let me feel it for a couple of breaths so that I'm not scared of it. So that I don't have to constantly feel like as soon as I get these discouragingly familiar sensations, I've got to right away adjust and get out of it. So some engagement, that's the thing. You know, Are we willing to engage with the sensations of the body that may be very difficult? If we don't engage, if we abdicate our bodies, then things go a lot worse. So we're in a a constant engagement, a constant dance with our illness. And it makes it actually quite creative and quite challenging. Uh, An illness can be an incredible path of courage and creativity. No doubt, it's very difficult and tough on a lot of dimensions, as we've been saying. But if you are willing to engage it, um, it becomes very noble. And, you know, some of the most noble and courageous people that I know are people who have chronic illnesses, who've had to cope with them. And it's made their lives definitely tough, but also um, quite noble and, and strong uh, because they've had so much to deal with, yourself included in that group. Thank
1: you. I um, so So basically what you're saying is, um, there's, there's another question here. If someone wanted to know, um, I always feel I'm not doing it the correct way. What is the correct way to meditate? What you're saying is the correct way is opening up, focusing on your breath, being in that moment, and experiencing your body and thought and it, whatever is exactly as it is in that moment. And th- that's the only quote correct thing
3: about yes
2: this. exactly and I like your quote around the word correct <laughs> yeah. <I do> too. <laughs> yeah. that's right. very important you know because that's what, that's what we always do right we say well there's a correct way to do this and I guess I can't do it because I've got Parkinson's or I've got rheumatism or I've got this or that mm-hmm. and I guess I'm not able to do it correctly but the correctness as you're saying the, the word correct has quotation marks around it and it's correctness from the inside not a correctness imposed from the outside
1: Right, it's a judgment, not a reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, Often people struggle, too, with uh, intrusive thoughts, thinking, well, uh, as I sit and breathe, thoughts intrude, so I must be doing this wrong. Yeah. Um, Can you uh, talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, in in Zen meditation, particularly in the style of Zen that, that we do, Soto Zen, um... Definitely, and and there's much uh, thought about this very directly. The goal is not to make the mind blank and free of all thoughts. Meditation is not no thinking going on in the mind. The effort, rather, is to allow everything, whether it's a thought or a sensation or an emotion, to come and go. So if a thought comes, we allow it to be there. We know it's there. And we also allow it to go. And this is not, not what we usually do. What we usually do is when a thought comes into the mind, we seize on it. Mm-hmm. Or we let it seize on us, so mm-hmm. to speak. So The thought mm-hmm. pushes us around and it proliferates a whole bunch of other thoughts. And, you know, the mind is going round and round and round and round and round. And we can get pretty agitated and obsessed with our thinking. Mm-hmm. In meditation, you use the feeling of the breath in the belly and the feeling of the sensations of the body as a container in which thought can arise if it wants to arise. But instead of getting hooked on the thought or letting the thought push us around, we let it go by coming back to the breath or coming back to the body. So the goal is not to make the mind free of thoughts. The goal is rather to allow thought to come and go without getting hooked into it. So that's a a subtle difference, but it's really, really important because if you think that you're supposed to have no thoughts, then you're going to be frustrated because oh,
3: yeah.
2: thoughts come and come all the time. And you'll think you're not doing it right. So you have to realize no, that's normal. On the other hand, if you just sort of sit there and think and ruminate, you're not going to get the goodness uh, that's possible from the meditation. So what you want to do is, in effect, bear witness to thoughts as they arise. Thank you very much. I recognize that thought is there. And now I'll see you later. I'm going to go back to my breath. Whoops, there's another thought. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I understand that thought is there. Isn't that nice? Very interesting. Back to the breath. Whoop, there's another one. And in that way, very patiently, you just uh, stay with your practice. And little by little, you the mind will be trained to get less hook hooked on thoughts and there will be less agitation in thinking
1: Mm hmm they'll just pass
2: thoughts yeah thoughts will come and go and and it'll be okay
1: yeah i I remember in one of your earlier earliest talks it's always stuck with me and i actually use this in my therapy practice that that thoughts and and emotions are they're um they're like clouds they pass through
2: yeah the sky
1: of your mind and if you just let them pass they pass they don't you know, nothing stays the same.
3: That's right. Unless,
1: unless you latch on to it. That's right. And 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 make it stay there. But That's it is, right. It's almost That's like right. trying to lasso a cloud and 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 holding fast. If you just let it go.
2: Yep. Exactly.
3: They just and there's another there's <laughs> another
2: great uh, Chinese saying about this that it helps to remember. Um, it goes uh, the the blue sky doesn't hinder the white clouds passing by Mm. so it's just like you were saying the white clouds are the thoughts that pass by and they can pass by in the blue sky that remains constant allowing the thoughts to pass by the trouble with us most of the time is when we're not meditating there's no blue sky (laughs) there's just (laughs) our being stuck with all the thoughts when you meditate when you return to the breath and the body and you make that commitment to yourself, what you're doing is you're creating the sky, the spacious blue sky, in which the thoughts can come and go. And uh, when you don't hook onto them, they're really not a problem.
1: Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's interesting, too, that often thoughts involve memory or future planning. And yeah. so, in a sense, when you hook onto those thoughts, you're no longer not only in the moment you're in a place that doesn't even exist yeah. although yeah. although you know you think it exists in your in your head but when you look at you know the moment in time where, where you're sitting or, or lying or whatever it, the, the the past is gone and the present hasn't come yet they do not mm-hmm. exist and
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I think um, you know in terms of coming back to the moment at least for me that that's been a, a real anchor to think you know why would I want to Go to a place that 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 doesn't even exist anymore, or that mm-hmm. hasn't been born yet. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that place. What I know right now is right now, this moment. Right. And, yeah. yeah.
2: And there's a surprisingly powerful healing power in being present in the way you're speaking of. Yes. It's very counterintuitive, but experience bears it out. Mhm yeah
1: With often people myself included um when when we're in meditation uh, we seem to feel very much in balance very much in the moment it's it's um uh you know without getting you know too caught up in the euphoria, which occasionally does come
3: <laughs> That's um especially in the does, beginning, yeah.
1: you know when you you first realize like oh, I'm doing it, and then boom yeah. <laughs> but but um but after. You know, this is often, and this question is often asked in the, at the end of our retreats. Someone will say, it, "It feels so right and balanced here," and then I'm no longer in meditation, and I'm out of balance. What am I doing wrong? What, what's, you know, what, what am I failing at? You know, that I'm mm-hmm. that I'm not still in that place. Could you mm-hmm. uh, uh, speak to that a little bit? Mm-hmm.
2: Well. As you know, and as I said a little earlier, um, the the uh, project that I started after I retired from the Zen Center is called Everyday Zen, which is a, uh, a phrase in the tradition, everyday practice, everyday mind. And that really is the most important part of Zen practice, is bringing the mind that we cultivate in meditation to our everyday life and our everyday experience. Now, The thing about meditation is that it's even though it might seem hard, it's actually much easier. Because in meditation, we simplify our lives. There's nothing else going on but just sitting there and being with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very good uh, situation for training our mind. Mm -hmm. Much more complicated to be present in all the ways that we've been talking about in daily life when we get hooked in a million ways to our usual habits and ways of thinking and ways of being. So, in Zen practice, uh, and I think this is true you know, of every good and authentic school of meditation, uh, which all of them, I think, want us to go beyond just finding some peace and some relief in meditation to finding a different way of being in our lives all the time. And meditation being a way of training us to do that. So, what we want to do then is... Just like we were talking a moment ago, uh, finding a way of letting thoughts come and go, not getting hooked into old patterns and old routines, which we can do most easily on the cushion, although, as we all know, it's not easy there either. We want to then be able to extend this into our daily lives, little by little by little by little. Uh, So, uh, you know, when we're cooking a meal, for instance, can we stop dreaming and just cook the meal?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: If we're cutting uh, vegetables, can we can we stop uh, just wanting to get it over with <laughs> and realize, oh, here I am, standing here. What's it feel like to have my feet on the ground? What's it feel like to chop this vegetable? How am I doing it? How is this cut? How is this one? How is this one? How is this one? And as you well know, uh, you can talk to another person and listen to another person with a powerful sense of being present Or not. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And, you know, certainly in the therapeutic situation, the more that that you as a therapist are able to really be present with the person as you're listening and speaking, uh, the more you'll be able to offer them something. So what I'm saying is that in every situation we're in, whether we're doing something physical, whether we're doing something uh, mental or creative, whether we're doing something without another person and speaking and listening, we can always bring that presence that present moment awareness of what is actually going on, to bear. And it will always be healing and helpful. And so we train ourselves. We use everything in our lives as a meditation object. Uh, Work in the kitchen, walking down the street, looking at another person, uh, completing a task. All those things can be meditation objects. And it's it's a gradual process. The work on the cushion which we hope is regular and disciplined to some extent, whatever we, what extent we can make it. Then we carry that over into daily life, and little by little by little, we begin to live a life of awareness and honesty with what is actually there. And that is going to require our, us to little by little stop, you know, wishing and wanting and trying to get rid of and trying to get more of this or that, and just saying, okay. I want to live with what my life actually is. If I'm in pain right now, I'm in pain right now. Let me live with that. If I'm happy right now, let me be happy and live with that. And I'm willing to live with whatever comes. And if I am able to live with whatever comes, then I can have a much happier life. Because there's nothing worse than having a bunch of stuff going on that you don't want to be there, and you can't make it go away, and it's there, and it's there, and it's there, and it's there, and and you are miserable because you don't want it to be there. And that's yes. usually what happens when you have an illness, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You're actively mis- miserable. You have put a head on top of your head, right? You have the illness, and now you're also miserable because all you want is for that to go away. And we have to cut through that mind and be willing to be present. And when that happens, magic happens. Yes,
1: yes. Um, I know that's very true in my uh, psychotherapy practice. I, I think I'm almost never more present uh, in the moment than when I am really listening, really listening to someone's yeah. experience. And what what I find and what I what I struggle with sometimes is then you come home and you're in a habit, especially after 17 years of you know listening to my husband and not listening to my husband. My <laughs> yeah. <mind sometimes. laughs> and, yeah. And trying to uh, really practice being with him as intently as I am with my clients has been an interesting Yeah.
3: Practice,
1: you yeah. know, not taking, uh, I guess, you know, uh, uh, what you have with you always for granted.
2: That's right. Um,
1: that's, uh, you know, be, really that's being right. present with that, that person who's sort of always around, and yet if you don't pay attention, then what's the point of them always being
3: around? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah no, but you're but I mean, I think what you're what you're pointing out is is something that uh many people will resonate with, you know maybe I can do this at work or maybe I can do this with my friends, but it's it's harder at home, it's harder when I'm alone, yeah but I think you know as you're saying, little by little, we can do it little by little, we extend our mindfulness,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but you know there's something else in what you said that I think is really important too. Uh, and that is that um how healing compassion is, in other words uh you're lucky to have a job like the one that you have where you can really be intensely present with loving concern for others, and that 's your job, mm-hmm. and uh you know how healing that must be for you
3: mm-hmm.
2: to be able to do that and and I think that anybody who's suffering from an illness if they if they realize that like wow if i'm if i'm really actively compassionate with the people in my life uh if i can really i mean there's nothing more moving really than someone who's very ill who says to you and how are you how's your life what's going on with you you know when you know they have so much that they're dealing with you find that very moving when you hear it and also from their point of view i think it's very healing for them to be compassionately concerned for others. So mm-hmm. compassion is itself medicine, you know. It's really healing. To be compassionate for ourselves and, and for others is really healing.
1: Yes. I, well, I believe, I mean, that's why I practice therapy. I do believe it, it is. Yeah. Um, uh, some some other common questions that, that come up are, of course, in the Western world. Um, some people say, you know, do I have... To wear those weird robes? Um, I'm, I, I, I'm a Christian. Is this a, against my my faith? Um, how you know? How can I meditate if I um, believe in Jesus Christ, or I believe in uh, Mohammed, or 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 um, um, I'm a, the Jewish faith? You know? Well, well, could you speak a little bit about that and about the well, weird robes? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no,
2: you don't have to wear weird robes. <laughs> uh and um and and really um as far as I have seen, it doesn't really make any difference whether you have a Christian faith or Jewish faith or the faith in Islam or you're you have no faith in anything religious um, if you're willing to do the practice and willing to pay attention to your experience, it will probably help quite a bit. And uh, and if you do have a powerful religious belief system, I think that the likelihood is it will enhance and make you feel more deeply about what you believe and, and it probably see dimensions to your belief that you didn't see before. And many people nowadays that practice everyday Zen with me and my groups uh, do have very active uh, Christian or Jewish uh practices there, I think there's one or two who practice islam but but um just because it's much more rare where I'm from
3: mm-hmm. uh, we don't
2: have that many people but
3: right.
2: yeah, no, I don't think there's any conflict or contradiction i I'm sure that you could find uh christian believers let's say or or Jews uh who would say uh you know that it, that practicing meditation is against my belief system and I can't do it. And so there are, I I don't mean to say that there aren't somebody, some people who may feel that way, but there are also many, many uh, believing Christians who who find meditation beneficial. The only people, you know, I presented meditation uh, to many, many thousands of people over all these years, thousands and thousands, I don't know how many. And maybe to some extent, you know, my audiences are self-selected, so the ones who hate meditation maybe don't show up. (laughs)
3: <laughs> usually,
2: usually people are happy to hear about meditation and find it. Not all of them, you know, take it up, but they always find it interesting and useful. But the only, the the only I've only twice had people hear what I had to say and say, "Oh no, that's terrible! I would never do that." And in both cases, um, it was Christians. One was a very strong Catholic, and one was a Baptist, and they both said the same thing. It was interesting to me. They both said, "Oh no." We do not want to sit still in silence, just being present, because that's how the devil gets in. Mm. That's that's we're just opening ourselves up to the devil, who will sneak in and take over our minds.
1: Serve sort of old idle hand
2: Yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. That sort of thing. So yeah. I was really impressed with those responses, uh, but I thought to myself, "Gee, you know, it must be a tough life to feel like." you know you you have to be wary when you're alone with yourself for fear that someone will take you over yeah that seemed like a very uh, you know i i wouldn't want to feel that way about my life i would you, you know what i mean i would want to feel like if i was alone and quiet god would take me over now why, why would the devil do it you know mm-hmm. well, why why would the de- you know why why would i be so worried about the devil but that's what they said and i was i was very impressed and they both seemed quite fearful people actually but those are the only two times I believe, and you know that I'm aware of, in all these years of presenting meditation to people.
1: I know from my own very Catholic background. I I, um, I don't find uh, v- v- any contradiction really in in the, the precepts or the you know the the sort of main um, uh, commitments you make in in Zen you know to not harm and to do your best to 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 be to be kind and to not to not be cruel and not intentionally hurt any you know being it is the same as in some ways the sermon on the mount or mm-hmm. you know what what Jesus you know, <clears throat> and certainly in liberation theology this has uh, come, come out a lot in the and the priests and nuns who have um, worked in oppressed countries that you know com- compassion in the here and now and, and being with, with people, helping people in the here and now is the true way of Catholicism. You know, at least certainly I believe that, and I know many Catholics who do. And, and uh, after meeting you, even my father, who's a Boston Irish Catholic, was, was very impressed and, and, and no longer sees such a contradiction between mm-hmm. my Zen practice and, and the, the Catholicism. You know, he reared me in for, you know, 12 years of Catholic school. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's um, there's so many. It's just a, a basically very 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 loving practice, and um, how can that contradict a, a loving any other loving faith?
2: Yeah, well, I feel that way for sure. And I've done, as you know, a lot of interfaith work and ecumenical work, and practiced in Christian monasteries and in synagogues and all kinds of places. So I and I and I really am very interested in other traditions and recognize their, their tremendous power and, and goodness. I think every religion has something to offer that's unique. Uh, you know, every religion has unique gifts, and I really appreciate the gifts of all the different traditions.
1: You talk about speaking with many, many people, and, and I know, you know I've mentioned we do retreats. Some people say, you know, do I need to take a course in how to learn to meditate? And does it make a difference if I meditate with other people? or should i meditate alone um you know what how how, i guess the question would be how do people learn to do it and then you know do they continue to practice with that group or you know speak a little bit to that
2: yeah well um almost all there there are lots and lots and lots of meditation groups these days um I think maybe if somebody gets a little bit creative on the on the Google, you can find out about a number of meditation. I don't really care where you are. I guarantee you there's some sort of meditation group. It may be hard to find, but it's there. And most groups uh, will offer some kind of basic instruction, so you can go there and get basic instruction. There are also countless books uh, that offer written meditation instructions. Um, not to mention websites with audio files, including my own Everyday Zen website, which offer all kinds of meditation instructions, and even some guided meditations that you can use uh, for practice. So it's not hard to learn how to meditate. Um, There are places that offer sort of organized courses rather than, you know, just here's a meditation instruction. They may say, well, we have a five-week course or a three-week course, and, and mostly those things are worthwhile as well, but... I don't think they're necessary to meditate. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yes, I think most people who meditate, meditate at home on their own. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do now that I no longer live in the temple. Um, But it's also a good idea to meditate with others. I think it really helps. So uh, if, let's say, you live, you can find a group in your area that you feel comfortable with, then you go to sit with the group maybe once a week or however often they meet or however often it's convenient for you. And then the rest of the time uh, you can meditate uh, alone. I think it's it's really important, I would say, to have some connection with other people who are meditating from time to time uh, so that your meditation, you, there's some sort of feedback loop in your meditation. And And the feedback loop doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, verbal instructions or something like that. It's just hanging around other people and seeing how they are and how they talk about their meditation practice in a casual way can itself be very instructive. So I think it is really useful to encounter others who are meditating. Mm -hmm. But uh, if it's the case that, you know, for some reason you can't get to some group or you can't find a group in your area, then, you know, you can meditate alone and you can, I would say seek guidance from uh, websites and and, uh, audio files. Again, the Everyday Zen website has hundreds and hundreds of uh, free uh, audio files uh, on meditation and related subjects that you can uh, access. And there are numerous other uh, websites uh, that you can access. So even if you're unable to leave the house you can
1: Right, start so thinking if you're if you're ill, yeah. or so Ill that you're housebound then.
2: Yeah, there's lots of yeah, lots of ahead. ways that you can get guidance and you can in a way participate with others through through the computer. Um and uh if you're able to do it, I think it's very valuable to do uh retreats of one day or multiple day retreats. And um if you're ill I think uh I would say that most places, certainly with Everyday zen, uh people come and practice with us who who have chronic illnesses. And the only important thing is when you apply for a retreat to let people know, you know, I, I've got this and so and, and I ne- probably need an adjusted schedule or do things that may be a little bit differently. Uh, or I'm not sure what I need, but I need need you to know that I've got such and such a, an illness. And I think if you do that and people who are running the retreat know what's going on, uh, I, I, I can't imagine that there are very many groups that would say, no, well, if you have these limitations, we don't want you to come to the retreat. Most groups nowadays are quite friendly to that and will offer you all kinds of guidance. So yeah. I would say that the way it would work is you'd get some instructions uh, either in a book or from in person. You'd begin to do daily meditation. You'd find a group and begin to attend once a week or once a month, whatever you could do. And eventually, if you really like the practice and it begins to feel meaningful to you, you'd seek out a, a retreat that you could go to, and maybe you'd go once a year to a retreat. And if you do all those things, you know you're really in a very transformative um, process that has the potential of really changing your chronic illness from an unmitigated tragedy uh, into a tough but noble journey.
1: I've always found when I've been in uh, retreats uh, in Bellingham, uh, Vancouver, Mexico, uh, Green Gulch, when I let people know my limitations, um, I'm always so moved by how willing the facilitators are to almost bend over backwards to to help me, you know, to, you know, what do you need? Do you need to, you know, lie down? Do you need a special chair? What can we do? I mean, they're just. Incredibly yeah.
3: um,
1: supportive, so I think that you know people with illness who want to try that, you know, I'd like to at least share my experience. That 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 well,
2: it's know, great to hear beyond, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, the thing is, it, I, I'm I'm chuckling because it's so so the opposite of what usually people with chronic illnesses feel. I mm-hmm. the truth is that if you show up somewhere with a chronic illness, especially to a meditation center where people are Trying to practice compassion, you're giving them a good chance to practice <laughs> compassion. You're helping them out, <laughs> you know. That's and crazy. usually, people with chronic illness say, "Oh my goodness, you know, I better not go anywhere. I'm going to be I'll a bother be to people. I'm going to be a burden to people, and all this." But it's just the opposite. You know, you're giving people a chance to to feel compassion and have the joy of, you know, helping someone out. And so you're you're a real treasure for them. So uh, and you know, like I say, meditation places are supposed to be places where it's all about compassion and it's all about you know kindness. So um, if you were, if we were to go to a place and they weren't compassionate and they weren't kind, well, that would be their problem, not yours, you know.
1: Right. <laughs> right. <That's laughs> <a good> exit. <laughs> um, if if I can ask a little bit, I know this isn't. Part of um, uh, the tradition you and I practice, Soto, but there, there is a, a practice of medicine Buddha. I believe it's um, very strong in the Tibetan tradition, mm-hmm. and uh, in the form of, um, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, but Buddha takes the form of Vayudura, Vayudura, Um who is like a, a m- m- medical practitioner. And um, why why I bring this up is that um, the way I've seen this interpreted in some um, Zen writings is that that practice is is a a form of a middle way. In other words, you you know, some people feel like, well, if I'm going to practice, I I can't take medicine. I can't, um, you know, the fifth precept says do not intoxicate body or mind. That means, oh, I can't take any uh, pain medicine or, um, you know, they can get very... um, Harsh, almost the way you know Buddha in his in his travels, uh, you know in his journey became very very harshly ascetic and almost to the point of, of starving himself. And that that that's an extreme way of denying the body versus you know the other side, which would be of course overindulging and and it numbing your pain all the time so you never feel it. That that somehow, it, it, from what I understand, then in the tradition of the medicine Buddha. You know, they see it as a as a middle way that that there's, medicine isn't bad. It's just not the only way to work with your illness. Would could you say if I got, got I mean, it's not my tradition, so I'm just sort of picking this up from other readings.
2: Well, yeah, you
1: speak a little bit about that. Or
2: well, I don't know uh, much about the medicine Buddha practice, but you're bringing up a, a, a wider issue, which is. Um, you know medications and how medications, the various medications that you may need to take, are working with the meditation practice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yes, of course, I, I think that. I mean, and, and you're, you're also talking about the middle way between, on the one hand, um, it's all about medicines and taking more and more medicines, and on the other hand, saying, "Oh no, uh, I should be able to do this myself without any medicines." Right. And the middle way is, is in between those two things that um you know when you think about it everything we ingest into our system every every medication is something that uh you know there, there there's two parts to that the substance itself that comes into our body and the way our body reacts to and works with that substance most of which is not conscious of course it's just physiological but our state of mind influences that for sure uh, and the medications also influence our state of mind so so i think um it's a matter of being thoughtful and responsible and sensitive to the process of illness and the process of the medications that we're taking uh, because the body's always changing the illness is always changing getting better getting worse uh the medications constantly need need to be adjusted So you really need a a medical practitioner who is willing to talk to you about these things and also be sensitive about it, and you need to be paying attention to how you're feeling and and your changing states of mind, probably keeping some kind of a how-I'm-feeling journal that you can go back and look at. makes a lot of sense so you know Mm -hmm. what's going on with your state of mind and your state of body under certain medications and their dosages and that becomes a, a very big uh factor, especially in the case of Parkinson's, the whole dialogue with the with the medications and how they make the body feel and sometimes better, sometimes worse, and you know, the consequences, I mean it gets very complicated as all Parkinson's sufferers and other people with chronic illness know. But you just have to be patient and um don't make any assumptions and just keep looking, what's going on, what am I taking now, what's going on, what was I taking before, what was going on then, what should we do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. So that conversation is ongoing and, uh, and you know, it's not as if there's a way of figuring it out so everything always goes smoothly. No, there are problems, as everybody knows who, you know, is in one of these situations. But you do your best to minimize the problems and be thoughtful about what is going on. And sometimes there are wonderful breakthroughs. Where I just had somebody I was talking to yesterday who, after 10 years of suffering with an illness and nothing working, no medications helping, finally she herself said to the doctor, you know, it makes sense to me. We should try this. And the doctor said, well, okay. And, and And it completely at least for the moment, turns her around. So she's in a, in a wonderful period of, you know, low symptoms, and which may end up to be permanent, you know. So that sometimes things like that happen uh, after a long, long time, uh, and sometimes they last and sometimes they don't, but it's a constant adjustment. But then again, what life isn't a constant adjustment? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're getting older, right? Things are changing. Yeah. So it's always like that.
1: I know, Robert, you've had some um, people from your Parkinson's website um, ask questions that I don't, I don't have in front of me, and would you um, please ask those to Norman now?
0: I'd be delighted to. Richard from Flint, Michigan asks, how do meditation and guided imaging differ? Uh,
2: well, I wouldn't say that they differ exactly. There are many forms of meditation the kind of uh, style that Nancy and I have been talking about, just being present, is a basic style, fundamental style, and, and it's the characteristic of Soto Zen, but it's just one form of meditation. Guided imagery is another form of meditation. So earlier in the conversation, we talked at length about the practice of just being present with the breath, and that's how that goes. And then Uh, as we all know, guided imagery is, you know, there's uh, usually verbal instructions while you're meditating, you know, visualize this, and, and, uh, you know, it's this color or this shape, and then you try to imaginatively produce that in your mind. So that's a very different technique. But I think uh, all these things are useful, and I think one should practice what you find helpful. Pam from Bellingham
0: asks, Is it possible to do a, and this is in quotes, quickie meditation, about one to five minutes, that is effective?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, a practice that I often encourage people in is a three-breath meditation. Uh, Sitting, standing, wherever you happen to be, just stop and take three conscious breaths, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Take three conscious breaths. So I encourage that. I think that's wonderful, and you can do that, and I w- and I think uh, you should do it. The important thing here is, though, though, is to recognize that if you say, "Well, because I'm so busy, the only thing I have time for is this cookie meditation," then I think the chances are overwhelming that you're fooling yourself. No one is that busy. In, in fact, I always tell people, meditation saves you time. You don't have time not to meditate, because what one is busy with when one is not meditating is all the messes and mix-ups that occur because we're not mindful. I'm busy. I don't have time to meditate because I'm cleaning up the mess when I dropped my coffee all over the floor, which I would not have done <laughs> if I had meditated.
3: <laughs>
2: so, uh, and, that, and that's really true. If you analyze your day, you're putting out fires. Mm-hmm. many of which would not have started in the beginning if you were more mindful. So I, I just don't buy it when someone says, I'm too, I'm too busy to meditate. Uh, so, cookie meditation, absolutely. Do it whenever you want to. Do it many times a day. But don't tell yourself, I need a cookie meditation because I don't have time to meditate. I think you're probably fooling yourself if you, if you tell yourself that.
0: Carl from Portland uh, says the following, Norman how does one quiet the mind when tremoring makes it difficult to meditate?
2: Yeah. Well, when you have Parkinson's, of course, you have these tremors. And uh and uh you know, you, you the the way the only way you can meditate is be present with the tremor to the best of your ability. It's only going to be frustrating to think that you're going to quiet the mind because of the, the, the the characteristic of the tremor. Is it's not just in the body. Parkinson's is, is you know, a neur- neurological disease which involves the brain. So when you're in tremor, it means that the mind is in tremor, along with the body. So uh, by definition, a mind that's in tremor is not a mind that is quiet. So what you have to do is, to the best of your ability, stay with your breath and ride the tremor through with full presence. And insofar as you can do that, it very likely has the effect of minimizing the tremor, bringing the tr- series of tremors to a conclusion uh, more quickly, uh, or having the little bit, the edge taken off of the tremor. But uh, Parkinson's is a very powerful disease and a very powerful practice, and I rec- fully recognize that it may be that um, just being with the tremor will not Change the tremor in any way, but there there is no alternative to that. My my friend Michael Sawyer, who I mentioned earlier in the conversation, was really marvelous at being present with his tremors, being present when his body was frozen, Uh, and you know it's an ever changing situation with Parkinson's. As every day goes by, and you're on different medications, which are at different stages of being absorbed in the bloodstream, so you look for those times when you can be. Quieter, and you capitalize on those. But it's, it's quite a go. I understand that. Linda
0: Ralph from Victoria, British Columbia in Canada really has two questions, so I'll ask uh, each one one by one. Could you recommend some wonderful music for meditation? I particularly enjoy bells ringing and the tin whistle.
2: Hmm. Well, I think she's really answered her own question uh, the good music is the music you like. The good music is the music that makes you feel, uh, you know, uh, calm and, and at ease. So uh, there, there's lots. Of, I think if you if you surf the web nowadays, I think you can find lots of uh, med- music that is designed for meditation. Um, myself, I, I find a lot of meditation music too pretty for my ears. It's a little too sappy, you know. But then I just I guess a, a, a cranky, cynical old guy, and uh that's my problem, but maybe not not yours
3: um
2: so uh I'd like uh maybe to listen to uh, uh Bach or doesn't you can buy a, a lot I like to listen to old jazz, you know from the fifties and sixties, and a lot of it is very raucous, but a lot of it is ballads, you know they always had a ballad mode, and there are a lot of beautiful uh ballads that you could listen to that I think would be. nice for meditation but um, but yeah probably um, chanting there's lots of church music you can get Gregorian chants are really wonderful and have an aura of uh, meditation so there's you know nowadays the world of music is in a huge explosion all the things that you can get you know on iTunes and on the web so it's a wonderful thing to explore Uh, so good luck
0: The second uh, question that she asks is the following. Are you better off uh, listening to music or fixating on a symbol for
2: complete meditation? Personally, I myself do not meditate with music. And I find uh, listening to music is itself meditative. But when I meditate uh I never listen to music uh, or have any sound in the background. I always sit and and i sometimes I listen to the silence or listen to the ambient sound, so my preference personally would be um no music, just um just be present with whatever sounds are there now, a lot of times uh when people recommend music, it's because they're thinking of meditation as um Specific kind of calmness or peacefulness. And the kind of meditation that Nancy and I have been talking about and that we're advocating is not that. It's really being present with what is. It's not we're not advocating a kind of meditation that gives you a break from your illness and then back to the tragedy. But rather a form of meditation that gives you a a whole new way of being present with your condition, whatever it may be. And so uh, I'm not advocating, oh, this is going to be peaceful and calm and give you a break. So listen to some nice music and you know feel good. Uh, no. Uh, what I'm advocating is be present. Be present with whatever is there, and that is ultimately the most peaceful thing. Being willing to be with your condition as it actually is, rather than searching for ways to get out of it, is ultimately the most powerful healing. So that's why uh in all my uh meditation teaching and all my ideas about meditation have to do with just being present without any music or without anything extra. Now so having said that though, if someone says, gee, I really love my meditation, it's so peaceful and so nice and I really love listening to music, I say, Well great, more power to you. I don't I don't have a problem with that. But I just want to be clear that um, what I've been talking about, what Nancy and I have been talking about in this conversation is something other than that. Mr.
0: Uh, Sony from Yangon, Myanmar, has a couple of questions. The first is, how
2: much time is
0: needed per day for meditation?
2: Uh, well, I, I always tell people, if you want to establish a daily meditation practice, which I think is a really good idea, because occasional meditation, when you feel like it, probably doesn't help that much. Then I think 20 to 30 minutes a day is is good. Uh First thing in the morning, I think, is the best time. Certainly you could practice more if you like. Um, but I think it's probably good to not sit for more than 30 minutes, and then after 30 minutes you can walk for 10 minutes or more and sit again if you like. But a 30-minute sit or 20 20 to 30 minutes or anything in between, is a good enough time to really begin to see some changes in your, in your mind, in your heart, in your life. The
0: uh, second part of Mr. Soni's uh, question is, uh, how uh, can he make uh, the meditation a part of his uh, daily routine?
2: Well, as I say, um, if you do, I think the, the way to do it is uh, the night before. Uh, make sure that you set the intention. Tomorrow morning, I am going to get up and meditate. I really want to do that, and I will do it. As you're falling asleep, review that thought. The next morning, if you, you know, set your alarm clock, or maybe listen to the rooster crowing before dawn, and get up before you have a chance to think about it or do anything or have your tea or anything. Go right to your meditation place and start sitting. I think that's the best way to put meditation into a daily routine. Because once the day gets going, uh, we get busy and life gets complicated and it's hard to get to it. So I would say start that way first thing in the morning. And then you can do uh, the practice that we mentioned a few minutes ago, the three-breath practice. Try to do that several times during the day. Uh, Try to, uh, in the middle of the day, when you take a break uh, for lunch, Spend ten minutes of peaceful walking up and down uh, just to return your mind to presence. So if you were to do those things that I just mentioned, you would really revolutionize your life, and meditation would pervade your life. And those are very simple things. They don't take much time, but they make a big difference. Marina from Israel
0: says that, uh, I have been ill with Parkinson's for a year and her question is, he says, I really want to be healthy. How do I stop progressing?
2: Well, you know, if I could answer that question with something that you could do that would really work, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> this would be wonderful. I, w- I would go to all the medical clinics all over the world and I would share this information and I would be, really do a lot of good for a lot of people. Unfortunately, uh, I don't think that there is uh, the kind of answer that she's seeking. Uh, I would say that in this whole conversation, we've been talking about ways to be engaged with Parkinson's as it progresses so as to minimize the psychological, spiritual, and physical damage and to make Parkinson's itself a spiritual path, as my friend Michael Sawyer did, uh, so beautifully and nobly. Um, if I had a way of making this symptoms uh, not progress, I would be a, a magician. I'm hoping that uh, since she just uh, got diagnosed a year ago, we can cross our fingers and hope that there will be something coming before too long for her. And that is very possible. And Parkinson's, as we all know, is one of the diseases that is really being worked on quite a bit. So there's every chance that something will happen. But they've been saying that for a long time, and and we really can't count on that. I think we really have to make up our minds to to live the life we've got as it is, as long as it remains as it is. So I wish her the best of luck and uh, probably her question indicates to me that she may need um, to be more accepting and realistic of her situation.
0: Nancy, do you have other questions of Norman?
1: Um, no, I just, um, that question was uh, very moving, you know, how can I stop it? Yes, time? isn't That's it? Right. I, um, yeah, I wish. For I wish. years, yeah. In fact, um I've, uh a good friend of mine, who, uh, who I hope well, well she has agreed to be interviewed. Um, she's a researcher in um, uh, Seattle, UW. Um, uh, Lee Nelson. She's researching um, the causes and, and, and conditions and possible, you know, cures for uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and um, scleroderma, which is a, a horrible kind of arthritis where your your skin and your your organs shrink to the point where uh, you you are you suffocate yourself it's a horrible disease and she's um, working very 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 hard on that and um, she gets very excited you know with any little breakthrough of course and and it's wonderful i, I the hear because she she also meditates she's been meditating for years and the combination of her very very scientific mind and her uh, meditation mind is just a beautiful, beautiful mix. I just, um, but it makes me think of her and how hard there are people who, who understand spiritual acceptance of where you are, while at the same time working very hard to find um, ways to re- really relieve the physical suffering of of these horrible diseases. So um, um, I guess I I don't have any. Um, other questions at this time, but Norman, thank you so much. It's been so even informative. Some of it I realize we've talked about before, but it's always a, a new, fresh perspective to hear you again. So thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you, Nancy. It was really, it was really fun and a privilege to uh, be able to talk with people who have these illnesses uh, because uh, it's quite a journey. I know, I know, and anything that will help is important, and, and I really and I really am, am quite convinced that um, having a chronic illness can be a spiritual path, as I said earlier, and, and to look at it that way really changes the whole frame around the picture. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Robert, for, for doing this and making this available. Oh,
0: Norman, thank you so much for being here. And how can people get in touch with you who would like to be able to connect?
2: Well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the website, uh, which is www.everydayzen, one word, .org, uh, has lots and lots of material on it. Uh, if people want to uh, meditate and study and learn more, they can uh, spend uh, lots of time on that website. We're, we're, we have wanted to make a website that would give people support for their spiritual practice and uh the everyday zen website is a very full site so everybody is uh cordially invited to go there and it also has my schedule if you ever want to meet with me and come to a retreat um you can see how to do that on the website yeah no the website now is has got uh many hundreds of talks that are downloadable onto your computer we're not doing CDs anymore because uh now the new technology makes it much easier Uh, free of charge Uh, you can make a donation if you like but it's not necessary you can download the talks onto a computer put them on an ipod or listen to them right on the computer
1: wow
2: yeah no it's terrific yeah
0: and i thank you both for uh, taking the time to discuss this most important topic Uh, i can't begin to tell you how much i learned about meditation from this discussion and uh, that's what's happening at Parkinson's Recovery on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the men are handsome, all the women are smart, and all the children are loved. Know that you are on the road to recovery. Good day.